Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To learn about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompoundinggazette.com. That's focuscompoundinggazette.com, and enter your email. Once you enter your email, you'll start getting one free 2,000-word stock write-up a week. Andrew and I also manage accounts for clients. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. And now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focused Compounding. So happy you're tuning in with us here today, sitting alongside the co-founder, Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, check out all of our content. We have YouTube videos. We post a lot on Twitter. Mm-hmm. We write about ideas at Focus Compounding. Yes. And then we also manage capital at yes. Focus Compounding Capital Management. So mm-hmm. check out all of our stuff. We're having a lot of fun doing it. And we're so happy you are here today. So in today's video, we are going to be talking about interest rates okay. and the yield curve and how it relates to a bank. And right. specifically the profitability from a bank and how it relates in, in when it comes to interest rates and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So we did, we've done a ton of podcasts, I would say, on banks in general. We yes. just did one like what, like a month ago. So check that out if yeah, you haven't. We did all about bank stocks, all about yeah, investing in banks. Inv- investing like in banks. And yeah. you've written pretty extensively about banks. And mm-hmm. um, on our watch list, there's a couple banks on there that yeah. in the past I think that podcast months. that's like all about investing banks was one of our best. And you also tweeted out something I wrote, the same idea of like how I look at banks. How stocks. to value banks, I yeah, think is what I it was. Bank stocks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so check it out at Focus Compound on Twitter. Uh, but let's really start with interest rates, right? Okay. Why? Is a bank so sensitive to interest rates? Right. And I guess like when it comes to profitability of the firm or the bank. Yeah. So we got an email from someone which is very common, which is that uh, the email was asking basically, why does it matter? Because don't banks just borrow at one interest rate and lend at another? So as long as there's a gap between those two, yeah. that's just how they make money. Um, so like the old way that people would talk about it from half a century ago is that you borrow at three and you lend at six, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, then you hear about the yield curve and an inverted yield curve, meaning that if you're borrowing short and lending long, you're not making anything more uh, than you otherwise uh, than you're borrowing at if you're paying competitive rates on both sides. But the real issue for banks is what I talked about in that podcast about the bank stocks and stuff, which is that they have a very significant component of non-interest expense, net non-interest expense, because they get some fees. Um, but on basically, a bank loses money on your business until it lends out your money. Yeah. So it costs them money more than they charge you in fees to have your checking account and your savings account and to do all the things they do for you, to have that branch there paying rent on, to have the salaries of all those people there, to pay a company like Computer Services or whoever to do the processing for them, Mm -hmm. to the IT for stuff, to do marketing, to do all that. That's a lot of money. And that is money that you basically is part of their cost of funds, their real cost of funds. So the bank will say like our cost of funds is 0.75% or something, which is what they're paying in interest costs on that. Mm -hmm. But the reality is it might be more like 2.75% because they're paying $2 for every $100 in deposits they have on all that other stuff that I'm talking about. So just like an insurance company has a combined ratio that combines both their actual loss uh, experience with the expense ratio. So they also have expenses. It costs money to uh, for Geico and Progressive and on all of those companies to actually get business in and to run an insurance company besides just paying out losses. Mm-hmm. And insurance, so it's like it's basically thinking only of interest rates for a bank would be like thinking that all an insurer has to deal with is their loss. 
um, ratio. They actually have to deal with both their loss ratio and their expense ratio together, which gives you a combined ratio. And that's actually the operating cost of a bank is their interest cost and their non-interest cost together relative to deposits. Mm -hmm. Now, what I'm talking about that way, a bank won't calculate for you. I always calculate it, but they like to use things like the efficiency ratio, which is relative to revenue. They're doing their expenses relative to their revenue. I like to do it relative to their deposits because I think that's what they can control and that's what really matters. Uh -huh. um, so you need to see a very low non-interest expense versus their deposits. And once you have that, the banking can survive in all sorts of different interest rate environments. Sure. But if that's high, and for community banks, it's usually very high. Why is that? Uh, they're inefficient. So they're small, they're subscale. Uh, they might be one branch or a couple branches. They have very low deposits per branch, right? If you're in some county in Western Pennsylvania or whatever that doesn't have a ton of GDP um, per capita and has low population density so that the actual GDP in the town isn't very high, there can't be a lot of savings in that town. And so even if your market share is a third of the town's uh, deposits or half the deposits or something amazing like that, you still don't have a lot of deposits per branch. Sure. There's no way around that. No one's going to go to a bank that's 30 miles away instead of going to the bank that's three miles away. So you just can't bring in that much in deposits and you're still going to have to pay people money to run the branch. And so that's the problem that you have is that your expense ratios will be too high. It's, I mean, it's very similar even when we talk about things like supermarkets. It works the same way, which is that having a giant supermarket serving a ton of uh, huge numbers of households that have a lot of money that they're spending a lot per trip, that they're visiting it frequently and everything, that allows them to have really low operating expenses. But if you take a, uh, try to do the same thing and put a grocery store in the middle of nowhere, you're operating expenses are going to be very high. There's no way around it because they're they're just high versus your sales. Sure. You can't sell that much in that area. There are some areas where you can't bring in a lot of deposits. So a bank that has a ton of deposits per branch is going to have economies of scale. Yep. Having a lot of branches does give you some economies of scale too. Um, having a lot of depo uh, each depositor having a very large account with you also will give you economies of scale because it you know to um, handle a client who has $1 million deposit with you is not 20 times more difficult than handling 20 deposits at 50,000. So you say, um, you know, you having more than one branch could give you the economies of scale. It can, yeah. Right. But you like to see banks that don't need to have multiple different branches. You like to see a lot, like yes. pretty much, for example, we were looking at a company and we we're doing some scuttlebutt right. on it. And we we're thinking about whether they can continue to grow from one branch as Correct. opposed to multiple different ones. Yeah, I'll be upfront about that. I mean, this isn't something that everyone shares my belief about this, but especially going forward, and I think this is already true now, um, having big economies at the branch level is to me the best way for a bank to earn a high return on assets, high return on equity. I think that I'm. It's. It is true that very large banks have certain economies of scale. They have some big revenue economies in cross-selling some things. They have some economies in like the stuff we talked about, core processing and IT stuff, and certain things of bargaining for some stuff. But their economies of scale, I think, are exaggerated sometimes among huge banks versus small banks. Uh, and I think the thing that people always underestimate is the huge economies of scale you get from operating out of one branch instead of multiple branches. So if you have $200 million in deposits per branch instead of $50 million in deposits per branch, the economies of scale you get there are huge because – for example, no bank can really get lower um, rental rates than any other bank. It doesn't matter how big you are and stuff. That's, sure. That is basically the market rate yeah. to mm -hmm. rent that space in Manhattan or that space in the middle of nowhere. It doesn't matter. So to have more deposits 
relative to rent is very important. And we've talked about it a little bit, but like um, I did a write-up of Farmer Mac, and one of my points was because they are a business that basically doesn't need branches and stuff, they're, um, they're, I gave the example that like Farmer Mac's total operating expenses for everything other than interest are actually as low as many banks pay just in rent. That that most banks are paying as much in rent as Farmer Mac pays for everything. Sure, that's how basic a thing like rent is. And so when you have branches that have very large deposits, you get economies of scale versus things like rent. Yeah, but also versus things like the number of employees that you have. And also with a branch, um, there are certain things that minimum staffing levels and stuff that you would need no matter how big or small the branch is. The same ideas with like when I talked about supermarkets or something. It it becomes more efficient to run a 60 or 70,000 square foot supermarket than it does at 10,000 square feet. It is not six to seven times more expensive to run mm, it. Sure. Yeah. And there are also like revenue synergies and stuff because you have the advantages of being able to cross sell a wider selection mm -hmm. and things like that. So uh, everyone focuses on like banks can merge and stuff to get these economies of scale, which is true. But the easier way to get the economies of scale are to bring in more customers at one branch and to bring in more big customers, yeah. you know, big depositors. Sure. And those are the two ways to get down your non-interest expense. Now, some banks also, there is some trade-off between the non-interest expense and the interest expense, which is that when you have high non-interest expense, so you're providing lots of services for your uh, uh, clients that you're not charging a lot for, basically, because this is a net number. I'm looking at non-interest expense um, less um, non-interest income. So if you're char if you're providing lots of services, you often don't need to pay as much in interest. Whereas if you're trying to run a bank that's like bare bones, we're not providing you any services. This is you know this is the um, spirit airline yeah, of yeah, yeah, banking, right. you know. Your ass and gas. Yeah. That's the rattle. <laughs> then you have to uh, offer them a lot of interest or else they're not going to bank with sure, you, right? Yeah, why would they? Yeah. So like if you were trying to run a bank that's basically on the internet and we have like a couple branches, right? You have to offer really big interest rates to get depositors sure. because otherwise they would deposit at the Bank of America, the Chase, the Wells Fargo down the street, which provides more services, is right there, has ATMs everywhere, whatever. So there, it's the combined number that matters. Mm -hmm. You can run a bank where you pay high interest rates and then have have really low expenses, right? And that can still work out fine. Um, uh, Berkshire invested in a bank that was like that. So they, they actually owned a bank back in like the uh, late 60s, early 70s. And that bank would pay pretty high rates for depositor money, like CDs and stuff. But they would have incredibly low expenses versus other banks. Mm -hmm. And they brought in a lot of money per branch and things like that. Um, so they kept their expenses very low on the non-interest side. And then you can afford to pay high interest rates and still do okay. <clears throat> but it's that combined number, just like for an insurer. Because for an insurer, I've said before, you know, like a Geico or a Progressive or something, they have super low expense uh, ratios, right? So their actual expenses, everything that isn't losses is really low versus their amount of premiums they're writing. That allows them to be competitive. They can, everyone's going to have not exactly the same losses, but for the same business, you're going to crash your car just as much whether you're with Geico or Progressive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So whoever has lower expenses in getting your business can have the lower combined ratio. And the way to do that is to bring in a lot of business, uh, you know, write a lot of premiums and things versus a small amount of expense that you have to have those expenses be cut down to the bottom. And that's the same thing with a bank where you have to think of that as a combined ratio where it doesn't matter what their cost of funds is just from an interest perspective. It matters interest plus the non-interest aspect of it together. Over the past week, we went uh, through some FDIC reports. Yes, and, FDIC and call reports. Yeah, yeah. and what? why do you, I mean, 
that's probably a good source for a lot of people to learn about banks. Yes. Um, and maybe a lot of people listening who have not studied banks before, they mm -hmm. probably wouldn't even know about this. Right. But what is that? Uh, so it's a filing that the bank does with their regulator, the FDIC. You can yep. go to the FDIC website and find it. Um, it's kind of like another annual report. <laughs> yeah. In a way. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it's just that, but it's just the data in terms of the dollar amounts and stuff that they fill in and the different lines that you see. So it'll give you all a lot of things that are going to show up on both the 10K and in the FDIC report will be like, you know, you'll see the amount of money that they've loaned for like one to four family um, residential mortgages yeah. and stuff like that. So it there's breaks all it down that. more. It breaks it down. Yeah. yeah. But it usually is going to have some information in it that the bank chooses not to include in its 10K. Among them are the deposit stuff. So on the deposit side, it'll break down, uh, it has to break down the amount of deposits they've taken in that are uh, 250 accounts that are $250,000 or more. They're going to give you the actual number of accounts and the dollar amount of all of them together. And then they're going to do another category, which is under 250000 like that. Mm -hmm. So you can actually figure out the average account size of accounts over a certain mm -hmm. level. You can figure out the average account size of the whole bank, but that's usually not that useful because what will happen is the bank's going to have thousands of tiny accounts yeah. and then like a few hundred uh, giant accounts or something. Often it's better to think of like, well, what's the average of the small accounts and what's the average of the big accounts? Um, but it'll give you ideas of that. And we looked at a bunch of different banks. Um, we looked at some banks that are taking particularly large amounts of deposits, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, and I should also point out, because we did look at one, because these are FDIC reports, these banks are regulated by the FDIC despite the fact that they're not public companies. So you can find information on banks that aren't public yeah. to compare them to. Yeah, and we sure. did. We yeah, looked at yeah, a bank yeah. that wasn't public to compare them to um, because we wanted to look at one private bank and then look at another private bank and one of them wasn't public. A lot aren't public. And uh, compared the amounts of deposits that they had and like what deposit sizes they had, which ones they're paying a lot of interest on, which ones they aren't. It'll give information about broker deposits, all I was going to say, even if they have another... If they have an asset management arm as well, you yes. can learn about the asset management business, yep. how many clients they have, what that account size yep. is, the the AUM that they have. Yeah, they have a whole fiduciary uh, section of it. Yeah. yeah. No, I thought it was interesting. And what I liked about it too is even from like the loan perspective, like mm -hmm. the types of loans that they are making. Right. What percentage of that is to, you know, individuals, what percentage yeah. of that is to businesses, to construction. Mm -hmm. I thought it was, it was good to sort of, you know, gauge that. And to yeah. your point, too, we spoke about uh, what you just said, you know, broker deposits. Right. Which you could think more so as there's, you said them, I mean, they're not managing that relationship. So exactly. it could be hot money. Yeah. As opposed to like, for instance, transaction accounts yeah. that are, are are all with individuals that they have, which would be basically a lot of checking accounts that don't bear interest and stuff, which is the safest way to have money. Usually people don't tend to move those um, accounts and that's going to be a good way to build up um, without having to pay a lot of interest on it. Whereas like when we're talking about broker deposits and stuff, obviously there's going to tend to be high interest payments eventually. If interest rates rise or something, people are going to expect more money on that. Mm -hmm. And it's not the same as a relationship that you have with the bank. What you're always looking for is like with these deposits, you're looking and saying, okay, well, how can they get the lowest total cost of the deposits, the non-interest and the interest together? And you want to think about things like that. Like, okay, if they have a relationship, that's good that it's going to mean probably paying less than interest, probably having larger average deposit sizes with you because once they're happy with the relationship with the bank, they're going to probably want to bring all their business to that bank. Sure. You know? um, but it can mean, well, we have to provide a lot of services. So can you charge a lot of fees on that so it nets out okay or not? And so how efficient are they doing that? Some banks provide a lot of services um, but don't necessarily charge a lot of fees. And so they could have really low 
interest um, expenses, but they might not be very low in non-interest expenses. Like I've talked about that with Frost. Frost, the only way they're able to have manageable non-interest expense is by having um, a lot of uh, money per branch and things like that deposited with them. It's not because uh, they've cut all expenses to the bone and are focused on you know not being all about customer service instead of being all about saving money. Um, whereas other banks will do that. And so you, know, you, you just try to figure out which uh, approach you think is going to get the lowest cost of funds that way. Yeah. Just like a combined ratio for an insurer. When sure. you look at the insurer, you're like, how are they going to get under 100 combined ratio? How do you think about return on assets at a bank or like return on deposits right. is I guess what yeah, you could use. Yeah, I, I like to look at return on deposits. Yeah, um, But you do it as if it's like a return on assets type of calculation. Right. Yeah, so for a bank, uh, assets, the, the number that banks are going to talk about is earning assets, which is basically securities and loans yeah. um, and also anything that's equivalent to cash. But the return on assets is going to basically give you a mix of of their earnings on deposits yeah. and their earnings on uh, securities. They'll be buying bonds and stuff like that. So I like to focus on the deposits part because that's usually the most unique part of it. Um, I feel like, uh, so basically um, the deposits are going to be, normally when we're looking at, we want the deposits to be funding loans and securities. And then it's a question of like, the people talk about the um the ratio of loans to deposits, right? And things like that. The loans are the specialized part of what the bank does. And the securities are basically what they're gonna do with the rest of their deposits. So what I like to do is start with the return on the deposits being like, what's the cost of the deposits? And then I split it into those two sections, which is what do I think they're gonna get returns on their loans? And what do I think they're gonna get returned on their securities? And the way I generally do that is assume their securities are gonna be the same as everybody else, mm -hmm. which might not be true. But like we looked at a bank where they were putting about two thirds into loans and then about one third into municipal bonds, basically. And so from that, you can just kind of guess based on the future that they'll lend out as much as they feel they can. And then the rest of their deposits that they have will just go into, into muni bonds, whereas other banks might do more like diversified across a bunch of different sorts of things. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just the cost of what the deposits are. And then same as like with an insurer, you look at the other side of it, which is the investment side. And for a bank, the investment side is loans and bonds, basically. Mm -hmm. And loans... Um, they'll give you information about their yield on their loans and things like that. But I'm usually looking at what categories they're lending in, right? That's what I care the most about. And then, so what do you mean by that? Like, are they lending to construction, construction okay. commercial Cons real or real or commercial right. businesses? Or yeah. Just real so the or big yeah. categories that you're going to have are residential, um, mortgages and things like that. That'll yep. show up. Um, although securities, they often will own lots of securities that are similar to residential mortgages anyway. So it's, you know, that might understate how much they're really doing in that area. But then you have uh, construction, which is a much more um, speculative sort of thing. And uh, you definitely, if they're doing a lot of construction lending, you definitely would want to know the bank specializes in that area and has a history of making good construction loans. Mm -hmm. um, generally, that's not an area I want to see a lot of uh, lending in. Commercial and industrial, the CNI loans, that's basically the lending that they're doing that isn't secured by real estate stuff. And that's basically business loans. Yeah. Right. And so that in some for some banks could be good because it may have a lot to do with who their depositors are too. Right. So they may know a fair amount about these people. And then you have your consumer ones, which is your auto and your credit cards and all those sorts of things. Yeah. I tend to like banks that specialize a little bit in some area rather than being super diversified. In theory, being diversified is good because the consumer will have a tough time at a different moment than businesses have a tough time um, your commercial real estate and your construction stuff might all blow up at the same time but at least um, at least households are sure. strong or yeah, whatever yeah. that's the idea behind it but I'm more worried about 
are they um, making loans in areas they don't know that well, mm-hmm. right? Like if they're making loans that I think there are a lot of other lenders who are better at it, then I'd be more worried. Um, and I definitely like they break down some things by geography and stuff like that, especially in the 10K, you'll get this. I especially don't like them to suddenly increase lending in certain categories that they haven't done before. The risky things are new areas of the country they haven't worked in before. So anything outside of where they have their branches, that always worries me. Um, so for instance, this is how Bank of Hawaii got in trouble. They were a Hawaiian bank. They started doing a lot of lending in um, California yeah. and places like that. There was another Hawaiian bank that did even worse. They started doing construction loans in California Oof. and basically blew up the bank. Yeah. So that's like the worst kind of thing. They were doing construction loans in a totally different part of the country mm-hmm. that they have experience in. So new areas of lending I don't like to see. And I don't like to see um, categories that would worry me, right? So things like construction would worry me if that's a very high number. Um, also sometimes you can't break it down. So like the construction things, you don't know if that's lending to home builders who are just like sitting on a lot of land and stuff that could really come into a problem. And then you have an idea of how cyclically dangerous it is what they're doing, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so like sometimes they'll break out for consumer stuff. They're like, well, we did do loans for RVs or something. Obviously that's more cyclical than general auto loans or something. Have you read any books on investing in banks that would be good for the listeners to... Yeah, the, the easiest one to start with, I think, is Nate's. Yeah, Bank Investor's Handbook. Bank Investor's Handbook. Yeah. That's sort of like if you've read... Um, That's Nate Tobik, for those who don't know. Yeah. If you've read like the little book that beats the market, yeah. it's that sort of tone and stuff in, in the sense of like explaining goes through the history of it. And yeah. like kind of starts from like, if you were to start a bank tomorrow, this is right. the process. Yeah. So so just in terms of like understanding how a bank works yeah. um, and all that. I mean, the, just banking in general and how to look for... How to think about banks, basically. I think that book's really good for. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what books have I read other than that? I mean, in general, books like that are specific about things about um, bankers and their experience in banking, I think is more useful. Um, you were saying that you're reading that book about Jamie Dimon, right? Yep. Last yeah. Man Standing. And I had mentioned that I had read the book that was about Sandy Weil uh, yeah. for a while before mm-hmm. that. Um, and uh, and that covers some of the same period and stuff. And that's useful in understanding those sorts of things. Was it his bio- his autobiography? Because he did write one, I know. Was it an autobiography? I thought I, I thought Sandy Weil wrote one, but maybe not. Maybe uh, somebody else just wrote about him. It was definitely a biography of Sandy Weil. I don't remember. It's been yeah. a long time for him uh, that I've read that book. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it covers a lot of the same period, so that would be useful. I would imagine that reading J.P. Morgan's um, shareholder letters. Yeah, they said they're good. Yeah. yeah, it would be good. I know that he broke down one that I read that was very helpful because it's a huge bank, and we talked about this a little bit. You were saying like um, how – like if you looked up a big bank, would it be as useful the call report? Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, it wouldn't be at all. The call report is much more useful for very small banks, very focused banks. The problem that happens, which is uh, what I remember about reading Jamie Dimon's letter, is he broke down like J.P. Morgan into um, this is sort of our uh, this is our retail bank, and then compare that to like Wells Fargo. This is our investment bank, and let's compare that to like uh, Morgan Stanley or Goldman or something. And because each of those things are so different, and this is a, a commercial bank, like corporate big corporations bank, which is very different from dealing with small businesses and things like that. And so each of those banks are actually very different and would have different sorts of returns that they're capable of earning. And he compared them that way, and I think that's useful because like we were talking about private banks, which have the possibility to earn much higher returns on assets than most banks that you're going to see. So mm-hmm. it matters what category that they're in, in terms of doing all of those things. Sure. And uh, he breaks it down. Uh, that's why I would suggest to people, I know everyone listening to this wants to buy Wells or Bank of America or, or JP Morgan or whatever, but those are the hardest banks to analyze. 
And it's much easier to focus on a bank that's in one specific region that's small or that has like a focus in terms of like it is a private bank or it is just focused on businesses in that area or any of those things because these banks are so diversified that, you know, buying them as like a basket to have sort of a in your way of like getting an index of bank stocks yeah. works fine. And there's nothing wrong with that. But trying to understand them is hard because you're seeing blended together the results of all different kinds of banks that are inside the same bank. Sure. You know? yeah. 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 No, I would agree with that. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Mr. Jeff and myself. Be sure to check out all of our content. If you're watching on the YouTube side of things, hit that subscribe button. We're pumping out five videos a week. And be sure to listen to all the other podcasts we had. Like I said, go back a few months, uh, not even a few months, like few weeks to a month and and yeah. uh, watch the podcast that we did or listen to the podcast we did all about banks where we went into valuing banks and mm -hmm. then also we've tweeted out different stuff as well. So Yeah, that one's good just for understanding bank investing in general. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with us here today. We will see you in the next podcast. Take care. Hey, this is Jeff Gannon and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To learn about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompoundinggazette.com. That's focuscompoundinggazette.com and enter your email. Once you enter your email, you'll start getting one free 2,000-word stock right up a week. Andrew and I also manage accounts for clients. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. Thanks for listening.